0: chapter twenty six of from tangier to tripoli by frank g carpenter this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by betty b the oases of libya i have just returned from Mecchia, the great oasis on the edge of the libyan desert east of tripoli it faces the mediterranean and is an island of green on the edge of this mighty ocean of sand it contains more than a million date palms fully as many olive trees and vast groves of oranges and lemons. The oasis is cut up by roads, much like the streets of a city. Each little farm has walls six or eight feet high, and everywhere are to be seen the high frameworks of the wells by which the land is irrigated. Cows, camels, donkeys, and women furnish the motive power for raising the water. In many places, tunnels or long-inclined ditches beginning at the wells and sloping downward for several hundred feet have been dug and in these tracks the cow donkey camel or woman trots up and down dragging the rope which passes over a wheel on the top of the framework and thus raises the water at the end of the rope is a huge bag of skin open at both ends this is dropped into the well and when it fills the lower end is pulled together thus forming a closed bottom, and the hole is dragged high up into the air. The bottom is now released so that the water pours out into the trough, which carries it off into a reservoir. As one of these bags will hold about 30 gallons, and the work goes on all day, the quantity of water raised is enormous. During my stay, I visited some of the gardens. They are of all sizes and are extremely well kept. One, I remember, was cut up by cement conduits running along on the top of the ground, so disposed that every little tract could be irrigated at will. Here and there, under the rich orange groves, there were beds of beautiful flowers, and in most places three crops were growing on the same soil. Over the whole, the ragged trunks of the date palms rose high into the air, their wide-branched, fan-like leaves quivering in the breeze, and their honey-colored dates shining like gold under the dazzling sun. The trees below were loaded with oranges, pale yellow lemons, flaming pomegranates, and even peaches and pears. On the ground itself vegetables were growing, and I saw alfalfa and grain of different kinds in some places. This garden was in charge of a Bedouin and several of his wives. Over a fire in the open, the women were boiling dates in a pot about the size of an apple butter kettle, making date butter or date honey, or perhaps merely cooking the dates for sale in the markets. The women were loaded with jewelry. With a lira, I bribed one of them to let me take her photograph. The others, more bashful, wrapped themselves up in their shawls whenever the camera was pointed their way. The oases of Libya contained practically its whole population, scattered over a territory one-ninth as large as the United States, they have altogether a million or more people. A large number of the oases, such as Mecca, are found along the shores of the Mediterranean. Others are farther south in the desert, in a Great Depression known as the Fezzan while still others are in the beds of dry rivers, where the water supply comes from springs or artesian wells. There are caravan routes leading from Tripoli, to all of these oases, as well as routes crossing the desert to the Sudan from one oasis to another. Tripoli is in fact the commercial metropolis of the Eastern Sahara. It lies almost directly north of Lake Chad, and its routes across the desert are the shortest, although they are by no means the safest. The roads over the Sahara lead not only to Lake Chad, but also to Tuat and Timbuktu, so that Tripoli gets a share of the trade of the French Sahara as well. The French have made every effort to divert the caravans to Gabes in southern Tunisia as their landing point, but with only a partial degree of success. There has been no ready market at Gabes for caravan goods because there were no merchants at hand to buy out a large camel train on its arrival. The caravans often transport goods to the value of tens of thousands of dollars and a big capital is required to handle their trade. The journey to the Sudan, for example, takes many months, so the freight must be valuable to stand the cost of transportation. I took a camel ride along one of the routes a few days ago and passed several caravans coming in and going out. The only roads I could see were the fresh camel tracks, which must be obliterated by every sandstorm. And in some places, there were for long distances no tracks at all nevertheless the arabs and bedouins can travel two thousand miles over such wastes without once losing their way i have heard much about the great oasis centers from the merchants of tripoli they tell terrible stories of the horrors of the desert and of the desolate villages scattered through it between here and fisan there is a wide plain of hot stones where there is no water at all and upon which travelers almost roast as they hurry across it this plain known as the hamada is about as big as kentucky and has an altitude nearly that of the blue ridge mountains in virginia the Fezan, which lies on the other side of the hamada also covers a large territory it is a shallow depression in the desert spotted here and there by oases it lies eight hundred miles north of lake chad in the path of the chief caravan routes to and Bornu. The trans-Sahara trade of the past consisted largely of slaves. From Tripoli, they were smuggled to Tunisia, Algeria, and Turkey, finding a ready market in the harems of those countries. They were often taken on the steamers as the nominal wives of their masters. Since no Mohammedan will tolerate any inquiry into his family arrangements, such a statement prevented investigation. The capital of the Fezzan is Mirzak, a dreary city containing about 11,000 inhabitants and dependent almost entirely on the caravan trade. Its climate is considered so deadly that foreigners compelled to live there think themselves lucky if they lose only their senses of smell and taste. Another important caravan center is the Oasis of Ghet, which lies in the bed of a dry river, and a third is Gdamas, In another dry river some distance farther on ghat is famous for its great fair which is held once a year and brings together traders from all parts of the sahara in ordinary times the town has only about four thousand population and the fair is held on a great plain outside of it the city is surrounded by walls and entered only by gates its streets are dark passages with houses built over them so that getting through it is like traveling through the tunnels of a mine. Gadamis, I hesitate to write the name, it sounds so much like swearing, is twice as big as Gat. It has been a trading place since the days of the Romans, and the caravans of the Fezan, Tuat, Timbuktu, and Lake Chad all pass through it. It is surrounded by a wall three miles in length, but the people live only in one corner of the enclosure. The houses are box-shaped and so laid out that the women can walk from one house to another on the roofs which are reserved for their use some of the most interesting parts of this region are along the mediterranean sea to the eastward of tripoli is the town of benghazi which was a thriving city in the days of the phoenicians and the romans still farther east is dirna the only place on the african continent ever seized by americans in the spring of 1805 William Eaton, formerly American consul to Tunis, started off with a band of 500 men, including a few Americans, about 40 Greeks, and some Arab cavalry, to cross the Libyan desert from Alexandria to Derna, 600 miles away. His purpose was the restoration of Ahmet Karamanli to the throne of Tripoli, and his action far exceeded the authority granted him by the United States government. In the long march the camel drivers and the Arab chiefs continually mutinied and the expedition ran short of provisions. Yet Eaton struggled through, took the town of Derna, and held it for several months until peace with Ahmed's rival was concluded by the United States. He built a fort in Durna, the ruins and rusty guns of which are still to be seen. The products of the desert are much more important than is generally supposed. The caravans bring into tripoli quantities of ostrich feathers and cotton dates tobacco and grain as well as the ivory and gold dust of the sudan the output of the oases themselves is greater than that of any similar area on earth outside of them there are vast tracts used for grazing millions of camels sheep and goats as well as horses and cattle of late years a new crop has been found which is bringing fortunes into the Sahara. This is the grass, commonly called esparto by foreigners. It grows wild along the edges of the desert and upon the plateaus, where there is only a slight rainfall. Not many years ago, this crop went to waste, but now the Arabs are gathering it and bring it in from everywhere by car and caravan. I saw it stacked along the railroad in the deserts of Algeria and Tunisia. The trains were loaded with it and there were mountains of it on the wharves of every port that i visited here in tripoli the alpha grass is brought in upon camels it is picked by the bedouins arabs and berbers every blade of it being pulled from the ground it is packed in great bags about four feet wide and eight feet in length two of these bags are slung over the hump of a camel and are thus carried for miles over the desert when the grass arrives at tripoli it is weighed upon steel yards and paid for at about $10 a ton. It is then baled up like hay and shipped on the steamers to England, where it is used for the making of the best book and writing papers. Some of the great newspaper companies of England have put up factories in Algeria for the handling of alphagrass. It is said that its value was originally discovered by the Lloyds of Lloyd's Register. It makes a much better paper than wood pulp, but as it is far more costly there is no possibility that it will displace the latter a large part of the caravan business at the ports is handled by greeks and italians the alpha grass is bought by italians acting for the english who ship it to liverpool and london and bring back hardware and manchester cotton goods the italians handle also the date exports although the fruit is brought in by native tribes who make a specialty of merchandising. Distinct among the tribes of the Libyan desert are the Mozabites, who are sometimes called the Jews of the Sahara. The Arabs say that while it takes five of their people to beat a Jew at a bargain, it requires at least five Jews to get the better of one Mozabite. Indeed, many believe that the Mozabites are of Jewish origin. At any rate, they outrank the Jews in their trading ability and have monopolized certain kinds of trade in the desert the mozabites have seven cities far down below algiers in the middle of the sahara at the point where the caravan routes cross they are engaged in commerce there as well as in algiers in tunis and in nearly every trading center of north africa these men stay away from home for two years at a time their laws require that they come back at regular intervals and their wives can claim a divorce if they remain away longer. If a man is absent more than two years, his wife not only has the right to marry again, but can take possession of all the property belonging to the family and keep it. I am told that the Mozabite women are true to their husbands. They wear black while their lords are absent and make great feasts when they come home. Among the viands served on such occasions are barbecued camels and sheep at the same time a dinner is given to the poor which strange to say takes place at the cemetery here the wife plays the lady bountiful sitting on the tomb of her parents while she hands out the soup and dispenses her alms i have seen many of the mozabites during my travels they are short stout and of light complexion with a jewish cast of features they are noted for their stinginess most of them sleep in their shops where they sometimes do their own cooking saving every cent to take home. At ten, a girl of the Sahara begins to primp and look at men, and something is supposed to be wrong with her if she is not married at seventeen or eighteen. As for the age of the husband, that matters not. He may be sixteen or sixty, and he may have several wives. Sometimes a female matchmaker is employed by the groom to find out all the details of the character and wealth of the bride. This woman goes with her to the bath and investigates her beauty. She makes inquiries at home about her cooking and housekeeping ability, so as to furnish a full description of the girl's qualities. The groom is supposed to pay a certain sum for the bride, and she is expected to bring him a small fortune in jewelry and household effects. On her wedding day, the bride is wrapped up in so many veils that she looks more like a bundle than a woman, and in this shape, she is carried on a camel or donkey to the home of the groom. The new home of the desert bride is with her husband's family, but only when she is the first wife. If he has other wives, she goes to the common tent where she takes her place as boss of the establishment. After holding this position for a year or so, she comes down to everyday life and does her share of the work. She aids in the cooking, in gathering fuel, and in weaving the cloth for the tents, and the family clothing have you ever heard of the Ouled nails they are to be found in every oasis and there is a whole street given up to them in biskra the so-called paris of the sahara they are noted for their beauty and are professional entertainers much like the Nautch girls of india the gawazi of egypt or the geishas of japan robert hitchens rather effusively described them in the garden of allah making them more beautiful than i have ever found them either in biskra or here in tripoli the uled nails sing and dance for money in the moorish cafes anyone who will pay for a cup of coffee can see them and scores of these dark-faced turbaned long-bearded arabs will sit and watch them for hours the girls are paid by the owners of the establishments but they also collect contributions from the foreigners present coming to them and kneeling down at the close of each dance thereupon the foreigner wets a silver coin with his lips and presses it upon the forehead of the dancer the coin sticks and the girl rises and goes through the wild abandon of another dance moving her head so gently that the coin remains where it was placed the dance of the uled nails is the well-known stomach dance in vogue throughout the orient it consists of a series of contortions of the hips and abdomen, while the remainder of the body remains stationary or perhaps sways back and forth. The girls are fully dressed, there is no exposure of the person, and they lack the tights of our wicked stage. Nevertheless, their actions are more demoralizing than those of the worst of our dance halls, yet their profession is considered respectable by their own tribe, and after a time they take the money they have thus made and go home to marry their lovers. End of chapter 26